we'll be continuing in Proverbs. As we think about Proverbs, Proverbs is a is a book that's given to us for the instruction of children. You think about the bodies of children and the souls of children, and there are ways to seek the death of children bodily, but also in terms of the soul. And we think about the secular establishment of public school system and how it is a mechanized system, a very efficient means of manufacturing the death of the destruction of souls. And we think also about the establishment of the murder of children on demand in abortion clinics and how that is the destruction of their bodies that has been established in law. And so we have these two things in our own culture. And this is the the culture of death, the desire to see the death of the seed of the woman, to see the children of the church destroyed. And yet there is a reality of a warfare that exists between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we need to remember that as we think about calling down imprecations that we deal with, uh, imprecations being the calling down of curses against the enemies of God, that what we are calling for in terms of the dashing, for example, of the children of the enemies of God is for those who are the seed of the serpent. We are calling for the destruction of the wicked. And so the idea of those in authority, those that are under authority, and even the children that are in submission to that system. And so we think about the justice that we all deserve, that we all deserve hell, and we all deserve death. And it is by the mercy of Christ that we have redemption. So as we go into Proverbs, I want to remind you where we've gone through. This is a book devoted to seeking to see life in the souls of children, and then in young men and adults, and then fathers and leaders. So we went through the first collection, which was the first nine chapters, and you can see in the outline there, there's that chiasm we discussed, that that shape, uh, that kind of half-moon shape. It's half of an X, a chiasm. And so we've considered the purpose of the book, which is to hear wisdom and instruction. And Chokmah and Musar are very common words in this book. Chokmah, wisdom, and Musar, instruction. So we think about wisdom, the knowledge of the good and the means to the good. And then we think about instruction, having to do with training, and training into righteousness. So those are principal things. We'll see those dealt with also in the chapter we focus on today. So I'm sure that's shocking. To see the words of understanding, to grab the instruction of success, justice, judgment, and equity. So then there's the thesis. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so there's a call in to fear the Lord, to see him as a terrifying God, and to realize that we need redemption, we need salvation from his just wrath. And so we should seek wisdom and instruction, chokmah and masar. We should seek wisdom and instruction, but fools despise them. And so we are all fools to some extent, and we all despise wisdom and instruction sometimes. And we have to grab hold of ourselves and stop that. We have to repent, and we need to seek wisdom, and we need to desire instruction. So we are in Collection 2, and Collection 2 remembers the 375 Proverbs of Solomon. That's the number of his name. So that's how many Proverbs there are. It matches the numeric value of his name. And this is for young men and adults. And so it goes through the middle of chapter 22. So 
We're trying to get through the chapter today, so I'm going to read this, um, follow along in the outline or in your own copy of the scriptures. A wise son heeds his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. A man shall eat well by the fruit of his mouth, but the soul of the unfaithful feeds on violence. He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. A righteous man hates lying, but a wicked man is loathsome and comes to shame. A righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, but wickedness overthrows the sinner. There is one who makes himself rich, yet has nothing, and one who makes himself poor, yet has great riches. The ransom of a man's life is his riches, but the poor does not hear rebuke. The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. By pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Wealth gained by dishonesty will be diminished, but he who gathers by labor will increase. Verse 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. He who despises the word will be destroyed, but he who fears the commandment will be rewarded. The law of the wise is a fountain of life to turn one way from the snare of death, to, to turn one away from the snares of death. Good understanding gives favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool lays open his folly. A wicked messenger falls into trouble, but a faithful ambassador brings health. Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction. But he who regards a rebuke will be honored. A desire accomplished is sweet to the soul, but it is an abomination to fools to depart from evil. Verse 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise. The companion of fools will be destroyed. Evil pursues sinners, but the righteous good but to the righteous good shall be repaid. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Much food is in the fallow ground of the poor, and for lack of justice there is waste. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. The righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul, but the stomach of the wicked shall be in want. The outline of this text, the first verse is an introduction to the section. There's an interesting way in which there's sort of four verses that connect and tie the, the whole thematic back together. Uh, at the very end of the notes, you'll, you'll notice that I have you recall, um, if you look at verse 25 at the very end, I have you looking back at verses 19, 12, and 2. Those all sort of link together a certain theme about desire. And so, the introduction gives us a heading coming into the whole, and then there's connections, links throughout. Um, I did not have the time to display some of those links in the last two subsections. There's four, sort of four subsections in this chapter of, of groupings, and I was able to get some of those laid out for you in terms of the way that there's sort of a, 
a structure in the subsections in, in the first two. But in the, the last two, I did not have the time to do so. But so there's interesting structures inside of this proverb, and I'll show you some of those as we move through the first two sections. So this introduction, a wise son heeds his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. There are terms here that we've run into multiple times. So there's wise, which is, you talk about wisdom, which is chokmah, and there's wise as an adjective, and that's hakam. And so we have this idea of the training or the discipline, the instruction. That's, again, masar. Okay, so we're seeing the same things come up. And the scoffer. Uh, the scoffer is in Psalm 1. The scoffer is in Proverbs 1. The, the greatest number of uses of this term, uh, leis, uh, is, is used in Proverbs. Overwhelmingly, the, the, the term is in the book of Proverbs. And so the danger of becoming a scoffer. The, becoming a scoffer is sort of attractive to young men. You know, there's this famous story about Alexander. He came across a philosopher named Diogenes. Diogenes was a famous scoffer. And Diogenes was basically lying on the ground when Alexander became known to have had some great achievement. I can't remember exactly what. He's supposed to have waited, and all these philosophers and princes came to him and, and congratulated him on having accomplished it. But Diogenes didn't come to him. So he sought out Diogenes and went to Diogenes. And the response of Diogenes after Alexander waited for a bit was to ask Alexander to get out of the way of his son. And so Alexander's response was to say, if Alexander could not be Alexander, he would be Diogenes. Okay, and so this, this desire that he would uh, see, that he, this sort of idea of being a free man, this respect for, for the scoffer. And so there's an attraction to the scoffer as being free from any sort of societal restraints. And it's, it's, it's a, an attractive lie that you could be this person who doesn't have anything holding you down. This is sort of the ideal of our culture, that the desire to not have any responsibility and to be an adolescent until you're 40, 50, dead, whatever, whichever comes first, right? And so that idea of avoiding responsibility, the non-rooted life, right? If you've, if you've ever, this, the four-hour work week was a phenomenon, you know, told like, told like 20 million copies. And the whole idea, the whole premise of the four-hour work week is you should just travel around the world doing whatever you feel like, and here are mechanisms to make it so you can work for a very small amount of time. Right? And so it's a very attractive idea. And the book has some useful tricks to get more done. Right? So I have read it. Try to add those in and then continue to work. And so the thing is, this book is a crude example. I do not advise you reading it. Uh, and it is, it is something where it displays this desire to avoid responsibility and run around the world having fun and, and going to parties. And then not really caring and not feeling any responsibility to the people. And so that scoffer attitude is attractive to young men because they have not experienced the joys of rooted responsibility yet. And it's very easy, especially as a young man, as a son in a home, to become alienated from the enjoyment of the place in the home. To buck against the authority of a mother and to buck against part of being a part of an estate that is run by your father. And so there is this danger of dissatisfaction. So we have this theme over and over again. We're reminded of the themes from the beginning of Proverbs. And so a wise son heeds his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Heeding the father's instruction, 
looks like a positive pursuit of the training that the Father has laid out for the Son. A positive pursuit of the training that the Father has laid out for the Son. And so, if you think about this with children or young men, young women, your affections are being trained as a young one, and you have the opportunity to be trained with far less pain now than you will when you are older. And so, if you seek to apply the training of your parents and seek to do what they are telling you to do, seeking to apply the things you are taught by your pastor, seeking to pursue the knowledge of God and the application of the law of God to develop your habits, the pain of correction now will be much less than the pain that will come later in life and all of the lessons of hardship that must be learned in between. And so, this is a time of opportunity in youth. Now, remember, when we see Father, this, like the fifth commandment, is referring to lawful authority. So, honor your father and mother means honor legitimate authority. So, wives, do you seek to be trained in the word by your husbands? They're commanded to wash you in the word. Do you seek to make that easy for them? Do you pursue that training? Do you seek to learn how they want to lead the house and what vision they have for the household? Men, as a pastor, I seek to train you men to govern yourselves and lead your houses, and to be fit for office as well. You may have heard me express that we need more officers. Are you seeking to apply the training I am encouraging you in? Do you seek out to know what would be helpful in your studies? Do you read books and listen to sermons and watch documentaries or series that I suggest to you? If you only listen to my weekly sermons, you will learn very slowly. If you think me wise, then let me show you where you can get wisdom and follow the training that I counsel. Right? So the idea of pointing you to books, pointing you to resources. Right? My first encouragement is obviously become used to the scriptures, morning and evening worship, right? leading household worship. But the other idea, it's important that you see what has the church attained to. And so we look at the larger and shorter catechisms and the Westminster Confession as having captured the pastoral work throughout centuries leading up to the high water mark in the 1600s of the Reformation. And so making sure that you have what has been attained to clearly in mind and understanding the reasons for those things. And so that sounds like a lot. This is the purpose of life. This is the purpose of life. And the lives of your wives and children, peers, people under your leadership, depend upon it. There is much to be done. There are many problems to be fixed. There's a generation to be trained. The generation that came before us was a wasteland. They left for us a desert. We have to turn it into garden, make it into cities. So the rest of this is going to be following out of this, this idea of chasing after the Nassar, the instruction, the training. A scoffer does not listen to rebuke. A scoffer... 
the wise son chases after, heeds, listens to the training of the father. But a scoffer won't even listen when people say, you're doing something evil right now, stop it. That's what a rebuke is. A rebuke is, put that thing off, stop, stop doing evil. It's not even a request to, come, let's go do this positive work. Let's develop a good habit. It's, stop doing this evil now. And the scoffer won't hear that. So, we go down now into more of the laying out of, the, of these connections. So, we have in, in verses 2 to 6, this laying out of, of things in terms of the son that is heeding the training versus the scoffer who won't even listen to rebuke. So, a man shall eat well by the fruit of his mouth, but the soul of the unfaithful feeds on violence. He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. So, the first part of verse 2 and the first part of verse 3 together are positive assertions about what this trained young man would look like. He would receive fruit from his mouth. He would eat well by it. He's not just eating, he's not just scrounging, he's not just getting by. He's eating well by it. And the one who guards his mouth preserves his own life. Okay, on the other side, the soul of the unfaithful feeds on violence, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. Okay, so we have the soul of the unfaithful and we have loose lips. The soul of the unfaithful feeds on violence. And loose lips sink ships and cause other destruction. We have good speech here, the positive and negative effects of speech, guarding the lips versus loose lips. And a man shall eat well by the fruit of his mouth. Look, look, look at what I've got here. My goal is to try to draw this out for you. So speech has the power to cause much good. We, we talk about how words aren't very powerful. They are extremely powerful. Words are extremely powerful. Speech has the power to cause much good. Words are a force put out into the world. Giving good words at the right time is able to dramatically improve things. Speaking wisely creates value and blessings, and it removes curse. It causes friendships to form and reduces strife. It causes well-planned and executed labor, and it reduces toil. It stops unfruitful working. Teaching and correcting, which is a prophetic type of work, partnership formation and the preservation of relationships, which is priestly kind of work, and the management of projects and people, which is a kingly kind of work, these are all done through words. They're done through words. And these words to organize labor, organize working together, and to be able to teach truth, these words have a dramatic impact on souls and on the world. A man who works to teach, unify, and organize wisely will bring about much good in the world. He will cause much production of good. He will enjoy the fruit of his mouth, and the fruit will be plentiful and good. He will eat well. Okay, well, what are the other side? The soul of the unfaithful feeds on violence. 
The unfaithful mind, the unbelieving and unreliable mind, eats the fruit of violence. He takes his prey by words that ensnare, pirate, pillage, kill, destroy. Piratical is a fun word, right? Turning pirate into an adjective, right? Being piratical, right? This idea of kind of being a leech, right? Piratical behavior. Trying to take something that somebody else has a right to and making it your own. Words can be used to do that. The unfaithful soul increases strife and toil. He spreads falsehood, breaks up unions without cause, and prevents the progress of plans and projects. The amount of time spent on strife generated by the unfaithful soul, if it could be calculated, would be immense. Now, one of the things that makes it so that the wise man, the righteous man who speaks useful words that he can enjoy the fruit of, is that he doesn't say everything that passes through his mind. But he does speak a lot, which is hard, because where there's much speech, sin is not absent. But in order to get things done, you have to speak a lot. If you're going to teach, if you're going to build relationships, if you're going to have plans and execute them and and give assignments and send it out, there's a lot of speaking to be done. And you can waste enormous amounts of time on fruitless speaking and fruitless arguments, but he who guards his mouth preserves his life. Literally, he doesn't use up his life on things that are fruitless. Furthermore, he avoids fights that could cause him harm Furthermore, he doesn't cause destruction on his soul by sinfully speaking in destructive ways. Guarding the mouth avoids saying things that are destructive. It avoids violence. A careful choice of what you say and what you don't say. That's guardianship of the lips. Think of a guard at a gate or a door. He doesn't just stop entrance of everything. He doesn't say, nope, no entry, nobody's allowed in. He chooses what to admit. He chooses what to allow passage through. So you can have the idea of the one who has loose lips, who doesn't discriminate what to let fly and what not. And then there's the one who chooses carefully what to say. But he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. Unguarded lips let just anything pass through. He who speaks all his mind will both cause and receive destruction. Now, that requires a lot of work. That's hard. James says if you can control the tongue, you can control your whole body. So, no biggie, right? Real easy. It's hard work. The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing. Because he doesn't do the hard work of controlling his tongue. Righteous, he he eats well off of the fruit of his lips, fruit of his tongue. The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing. But the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. And we were just given a lesson about having things and having them abundantly. I think that was back in, oh right, 
Verse 2. A man shall eat well by the fruit of his mouth. So, this lesson about industry contrasting diligence and laziness. The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing. Laziness comes from the despising of work and a rejection of the lawful means of fulfilling desire. Think about this. Being lazy, you don't lack desire. There's plenty of desire there. Being lazy, lazy people desire lots of things. Very frustrating. Soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing. Laziness comes from despising of work, a rejection of the lawful means of fulfilling desire. As a result, the lazy man has desires but does not do what is lawful to fulfill the desires. Foolishness rejects the means of obtaining what is good. Do you view work as good? Let's let's pause on that. Ask yourself really now. Do you view work as good? Is it good to work? Are you enjoying resting, enjoying the Sabbath day, but also not dreading having to work tomorrow? And so, if there's a dread for work, which confess sometimes I dread the thought of having to go back to work, right? So there's foolishness there. If you dread it, though, you should rebuke yourself. And you have conversations with yourself, like me. And these conversations with yourself would be something like, you fool, why do you hate work? Do you not want to accomplish the things that are necessary for the glory of God? Do you not want to be able to fulfill your own desires? Do you want to fall into shame and destitution and, and ruination and other words that end with Asian? And typically, at that point, get over it. But that's what you have to do. You have to tell yourself this is foolish. You have to rebuke yourself. So the lazy man desires and has nothing. Do you see how work itself is good for you and brings good rewards? How is it good for you? Do you see how work is enjoyable? Is there anything noble and enjoyable and beautiful in work? Do you see how it encourages righteousness, discourages sin, builds relationships that are worthwhile, and discourages friendships with wastrels, increases wisdom, and beats out foolishness? You work really hard for something, and you waste your money. You go, why did I do that? You associate the dollars with all the work you put into it. And what I got was this. But the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. Diligence is an understanding of the goodness of fruitful work. It does not love work for the sake of work. Work isn't the good. It loves work as a means to glorify God. Diligence builds wealth. Diligence finds decisive points. Points that are takeable with the current resources and that are valuable in adding strength. Their decisive points are force multipliers. Diligence finds decisive points, takes them, and then moves on to the next decisive point. 
as a way of trying to move toward the ultimate objective of filling the earth with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Verse 5. A righteous man hates lying, but a wicked man is loathsome and comes to shame. A righteous man hates lying, but a wicked man is hateful. He's full of hate. It comes to shame. He's full of hate, apparently, for everything except for lying. Lots of hate to go around. Lots of loathing to go around. Insufficient for hating lying. Righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, but wickedness overthrows the sinner. So we're talking about evil speech. So the righteous man's attitude. The righteous man hates lying. And his hatred of lying causes him to be blameless, to avoid speaking in a way that's blameworthy. And he speaks good words. And the speaking of good words, if he takes up the speech time with speaking good words, there's not time for the speaking of bad words. When you're, when you're busy spreading the truth, there's very little time for spreading lies. This is the Pauling principle of put off, put on. You don't just put off. Putting off doesn't work. You can't just get rid of bad habits by saying, stop it, don't do anything. That's not going to last very long. You have to put on righteousness. You have to do the right thing. So righteousness guards him whose way is blameless. He hates lying, avoids lying by speaking good. Which means you need wisdom, so you know what to say. But wickedness overthrows the sinner. The wicked man is full of hate, and his hate causes him to do stupid things that bring him to shame. When was the last time you saw somebody acting out of hate and do something really smart? They were raging at somebody else, and the most prudential actions and words poured out like wine. It doesn't happen. So, being full of hate results in shame. And so, that hate, the wickedness, destroys the sinner. He overthrows himself because the hateful action comes back. And so, do you think that might relate to lying at all? Do you think that hateful lying ever results in shame and things coming back on the person who hatefully lies? So think back through verses 2 to 6 now, from point 17. The amazing power of speech and thus of wisdom is displayed in the power of words to gather, unify, organize, and bring about accomplishment. Righteous leaders have an amazing effect, and the wicked wicked can destroy much good. That's the conclusion of the section. To emphasize that, I want to actually now go back to verse, er, points 15 and 16. What are all the things that were said of the righteous? The righteous hates lying, is diligent, guards his mouth, speaks useful truths. As a result, here are some inducements to action. He's guarded by righteousness, made rich, Preserves his own life and eats well. I find the food motivating. The wicked 
is loathsome, hateful, lazy, loose-lipped, and unfaithful. And as a result, he's overthrown by his own evil, shamed, poor, destroyed and destroying, violent, and taking in violence. So this method of laying out side by side these antithetical parallelisms, you can grab them, pull them together, and then kind of sort them into the righteous and the wicked, and then they become these powerful lists. So that's the first section. So now moving into the second section. Wealth, wisdom, and the good. As one who makes himself rich yet has nothing, and one who makes himself poor yet has great riches. The ransom of a man's life is his riches, but the poor does not hear rebuke. The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. By pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Wealth gained by dishonesty will be diminished, but he who gathers by labor will increase. So verse 7, money without wisdom is poverty. No money with wisdom is a great possession. If you have wisdom but no money, you have a great possession. If you have money but no wisdom, you are poor. Now, reading through commentaries, there were a number of other interesting interpretations of this verse. I, I think the one I just shared with you is the accurate one, but... The other ones are also true, because I can find other verses to prove them. And I find them interesting enough to share. So let's go through this. Alternate interpretations. So if we read verse 7, there's one who makes himself rich yet has nothing, and one who makes himself poor yet has great riches. So we're looking at point eighteen a Roman numeral 1. You're welcome. Condemns those who pretend to be rich. Scottsdale Millionaires who foolishly use up their strength to appear to be rich rather than work and live modestly to build wealth. Right, so why do people do that? Because they want to look rich because there's an honor that comes with riches. Right? So they're trying to honor themselves as opposed to having a servant and building up wealth. Remember that verse from the previous chapter. So the other one, this text condemns both people who think themselves rich but do not know their poverty and people who are too blind to work with what they have. So, you think about people who are self-righteous. You think yourself rich, and you don't realize the way in which you are poor. On the other side, there are people who think God hasn't given them anything. They're too foolish to take the resources that the Lord has given to them and steward them well. The third interpretation censures the leeching extraction from others to provide for self and commends the rich poverty, the rich poverty of service, exemplified by Jesus and Paul. But Jesus and Paul, you think about them, they're not particularly wealthy. They're not running around with a lot of money. But they are basically spiritual special forces. Right? They are running around from mission to mission, just destroying strongholds of the devil, moving on. Explosions, they don't look back. Right? This is just constant movement and constant manly engagement with the enemy going from place to place. That manly, rich poverty, this riches of service. And so 
it's interesting because you think about it, there are some people who if they lose all their money they will probably become rich again very quickly and there are other people who could have lots of money and would probably lose it very quickly what is the difference the difference is an attitude about work and moving from decisive point to decisive point and so you can think about is money the goal or is money a tool Paul collected tons of money. Money went through his hands like crazy. And he was constantly giving it away and using it effectively to cause good works to occur. Jesus had money coming through his hands and had it go out to help the poor and to accomplish things and had to use miracles to have enough bread and fish to feed everybody that was around him. Right? So this working is an effectual working with the resources that they have. And so this is the sort of idea of the rich poverty of service. So those are all delightful, but I think what it means is money without wisdom is poverty, no money with wisdom is great possession. So then it goes on and engages with ideas. So one of the structures that exists here is verses 8 through 11 have a sort of A, B, A, B structure. Okay, so now I've tried to take the A's and lump them together and the B's and lump them together so you can see the relationship here. Okay, so let's look at the A's. So we're on page 5.20. The ransom of a man's life is his riches, but the poor does not hear rebuke. By pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Okay, so wealth is used to redeem the man from harm, death, when it brings rebuke and counsel that is heeded. Okay, so the idea of ransom, over and over again, the ransom language, that term, when you look at the rest of the usages in the Bible, they're about buying people out of slavery, it's about buying people out of guilt. It's, it's, you know, you're familiar with the places where ransom is used in the scriptures. And so this idea that his riches are somehow a ransom for his own life. How? Okay, and then we go to the poor. The poor does not hear rebuke. Is this saying that the poor are always proud? What is the effect of riches? We, we see this in terms of the social atmosphere. When you have money, friends come out of the woodwork. And relatives. Second cousin through whom? And so, the ransom of a man's life is his riches, but the poor does not hear rebuke. Now, I think that this is an, a, 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 a sort of a, a double-meaning text. Here's what I think the two meanings are. First of all, the fear of losing money makes rich people anxious and causes them to do action. When the funny thing is, a lot of the time they want the money so they can be lazy. And so there's this fear of losing the wealth that is sort of a goad to drive action. Because there's this danger to want to just take the possessions and put them in a big barn and say, ah, days of ease have begun. And if you take money and use it that way, the fear of losing it will make a goad that causes you to do work anyways. You won't get the relaxation you were hoping for. On the other side, 
the money of the rich man brings people to him and in that social sphere creates pressure and opportunity for rebuke and expressions of concern. And here's the thing. Even advisors that aren't particularly concerned for the well-being of the rich person are concerned about the loss of the money of the rich person because the relationship with the rich person depends upon the money being useful. And so they help to advise action to avoid the loss of the golden goose. And so there's a rebuke about foolishness and wastefulness and squandering that occurs by that drawing in. And so there's a way in which wealth itself draws people around and creates opportunity for rebuke. But the poor, people don't take the time to give them the attention, to give them counsel, to rebuke them. Now, it's possible for the poor and the rich to be proud. And so the rich man with lots of people around can be proud and have strife, and the poor man can have strife and be, be proud and avoid opportunity to get out of the poverty because you typically need to work with other people in order to get out of poverty. But with the well-advised is wisdom. And so I think there is also a connection here to the idea that if you are wise, it's because you are humble, God has humbled you, and caused you to become diligent through wisdom, which is supposed to bring wealth, right? We've seen this chain of reaction, this chain of reaction that's throughout the book of Proverbs. And at the same time, strife leads to poverty. And so wisdom is encouraged by being well advised. And so the drawing around of people and seeking their counsel, you can connect that to a number of other Proverbs. And that's the way these things are supposed to be used. You draw them together and you see connections of things. There's a chain into a reaction. And so that, that connection, that web of the verses. So I've laid out for you a number of ways I think those relate. Now I think those are different applications and connections that draw things out. Uh, one thing I want to warn about, um, point D, wealthy people who do not put their wealth to work become proud, petty, quarrelsome, and grasping. Are you, you, have you ever seen, known, you know, a rich miser, right? Typically, that sort of miserly behavior comes from a sense of, of finitude of resources. And so when you're not generous and when you don't deploy resources and put them into risk, you have this sort of grasping attitude about the resources that you've got. And so the hoarding type behavior that's meant to make it so that you can rest and be at ease and happy and the life of the party, that type of thing disappears. When, when money becomes your God, you have pride about having gotten the money. You're petty about making sure that little offenses that cost money are paid back. You're quarrelsome about money, and you're grasping at taking gain. Without work to do, sitting around enjoying the money, without work to do, men become ridiculous. And so work helps to encourage this attitude of plenty because it generates a flow of resources. Now the B set. The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. Wealth gained by dishonesty will be diminished, but he who gathers by labor will increase. They said the light of the righteous rejoices. 
What's the light here? How does light rejoice? So you think about light often, it's truth in the scriptures. Okay? Light here is talking about the light of the man. Jesus talks about the idea that the light of the body is the eye, and when the eye is dark, or that man because of the darkness of his body, the rest of the body will be very dark. But the idea there is this idea that the eye is being used symbolically to reference the mind, and so the light of the mind is there. In the beginning of John, there's the light that lights the minds of all men. Elsewhere, we see light being referenced in terms of the thinking of the man. So this is the thinking of the man. This is the the light of the righteous rejoices. The, The thinking of the man, the reasoning of the man who is righteous rejoices. But the lamp of the wicked will be put out. So wickedness is sort of covering the lamp, hiding the lamp, trying to put the lamp out, stop thinking, meaninglessness, boredom, guilt. Right, the, the removal of thinking results in meaninglessness in thought and action and word. And the result of that is a great boredom and a failure to act well. And so that results in want. It results in laziness. Not thinking, not having wisdom, not knowing what God has said, not getting the goal of glorifying God, not having good work to do, results in boring, lazy conduct. That certainly expands the sense of guilt. And breeds frustration. And it results in these outbursts of foolish activity like... Seeking to gain wealth by dishonesty. Well, wealth gained by dishonesty will be diminished. But he who gathers by labor will increase. The light of the righteous rejoices. He thinks and he is joyful and he moves forward as a happy warrior to go to the next decisive point. And he tries to get the next thing done. And so he gradually gathers by labor. He increases gradually. He also increases in terms of the wealth of the mind, which, by the way, we were just reminded is more important than money. You have lots of money and no wisdom. Poor. And so when you work, you are forced to apply the law of God. You are forced to engage with things. You have to deal with other people. And so you're pushed to deal with things, and you're pushed to study, to know how to answer, and to know how to behave. And so work drives you out to the edges. And remember, work doesn't just occur for pay. This is work in the home. This is the rearing of children. This is managing your own estate. This is dealing with your own property. This is helping other people with things without getting paid for it. Work causes this. So the next section, verses 12 to 19. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. See the thematic interrelationship about desires here and how these are kind of a building case in these subunits for the glories of wisdom and how if you follow the instruction, the training of your father, that the result is this working and getting what you desire. And so there's this emphasis on the sweetness of desire. So this section ends with 19. So let's look at 12 and 19 together and then we'll read through it and you can see how it fits into that sandwich. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. 
A desire accomplished is sweet to the soul, but it is an abomination to fools to depart from evil. Okay, so let's let's look at that together. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. He who despises the word will be destroyed, but he who fears the commandment will be rewarded. The law of the wise is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. Good understanding gives favor, gains favor for, for you. But the way of the unfaithful is hard. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool lays open his folly. A wicked messenger falls into trouble, but a faithful ambassador brings health. Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction, misar, training. But he who regards a rebuke will be honored. Rebuke and instruction, misar. Same as back in verse 1. A desire accomplished is sweet to the soul, but it is an abomination to fools to depart from evil. You see, those are little evidences in this section of the literary unit element, how, how this relates to the other sections, it relates back even to the beginning of the chapter. So there's intentional linguistic connecting, and there's thematic connecting, and there's a structure to the text. So let's run through this one, and we'll look at some brief views on this. There's a lot to chew on here but I will seek to give you some of it. Verse 12, hope deferred and desire obtained. Those are contrasted. Or sorry, not, not, yeah, those are contrasted. And so hope deferred causes a sickness of the heart, whereas obtaining what you desire is, a, is life. It's, it's a tree of life. What's the tree of life? The tree of life is the sacrament. It's a sign of the covenant of works. And the idea is it represents life. And it represents the idea of getting spiritual life maintaining an immortality. And so this idea that it gives strength. So when you work to accomplish decisive points and then you accomplish those things and take the decisive point, you are encouraged to move on. The same is true in battle. One unit defeats another unit and they are encouraged by the victory to carry on. And there's a momentum that builds in battles. And so the working that occurs, the fighting that occurs in the world is the story of going from strength to strength. And so we ought to pursue successes, victories. We ought to pursue to grow in sanctification. And we'll see our sanctification snowball. The gathering of wealth snowballs. The pulling together of a church snowballs. Right? All of the work of life, the days of beginnings, are small. But they are not to be despised. And they result in fruit across time when they are properly laid Hope deferred makes the heart sick. The failure to pursue what ought to be done. The failure to pursue after victory. The failure to accomplish what ought to be done. Not putting all of the resources, all the effort, and the focus on the accomplishment of something specific. When you diffuse out your energy, you don't have the victories that make it so that you can move from strength to strength. So you have to focus to reduce the work in progress. And you have to accomplish particular open tasks. Now, verse 13. He who despises the word will be destroyed, 
but he who fears the commandment will be rewarded. Despising the word versus fearing the word. This despising results in destruction and that occurs at multiple levels. It's short term, it's long term, it's an everlasting condition. But the fear of the word results in rewards that are short term and long term and everlasting. And so you can flesh that out. We've been seeing all sorts of rewards. The whole book of Proverbs is basically saying, here are all the rewards for fearing the word of God. Here are all the curses for disdaining the word of God. That's being laid out. This is a catch-all reminder of those things. The law of the wise is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. So this connects in with 13. The law of the wise, the law, the commandments of the Lord, it encourages life, it brings life. So applying the law gives that strength. So accomplishing things is a tree of life, and the law of the Lord is a fountain of life. They both encourage life, and the law of the Lord helps us. It's a tool of dominion. The law of the Lord is the instruction manual for dominion. It says, here are you, here's the world, here's how you rule the world, here's how you operate yourself. That's what the law of God does. It's the instruction manual that tells you how to use it all well. So the law of God is an instruction set that helps us to understand the nature of things and to understand how to make them work together. But turning away from the law of the wise, turning the law of the wise away from you, rejecting it, sending it away. No, no, I don't accept the delivery. I prefer to not get your rebuke. I don't need your instruction. I don't need the training. Refused by sender. To turn one of the laws of the wise away, right, that would be foolish. Instead, what we want is we want to be, we want the law of the wise to turn us away from the snares of death. And so we want to make it so that we hear the law of the wise and in response to it, stop pursuing our own folly. Now, down in verse 19, it's an abomination to fools to depart from evil. The law of the wise turns away from the snares of death, but it's an abomination to fools to depart from evil. So that's why they don't want to hear instruction. They, they reject rebuke because they love their goal. Right? If somebody is, is dead set on pursuing sinful pleasure of some variety, then all the instruction about how to pursue the knowledge of God is going to be abominable to them. Because it's not going to mesh well with the pursuit of their false god. And what happens is people, people are rational beings. And they see the line of argument pretty quick. Ah, if I pursue this god, then I have to reject my god. That means I can't do the means of getting my god anymore. I have to do these other means that are in pursuing this god. And I would prefer my god. If I could have them both, that would be nice. Let's make up Hinduism. Verse 15. Good understanding gains favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. Good 
Your understanding helps to gain favor with other people in terms of social sphere. It's one of the ways in which it helps to bring about wealth and help you eat well, right? But it also is something that God blesses, whereas God brings discipline and hardship, and other people will push back with hardship when you are unfaithful. Right? Just think about even worldly institutions, right? Do godless, secular corporations reward faithful servants or unfaithful servants? Right? People who do the work and are viewed as valuable are going to be rewarded. But if someone is dropping the ball, not accomplishing things, not helping to get things done, there's going to be this sort of hardship that comes. Verse 16, every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool lays open his folly. Prudence results in prudent action. Both it and its fruit can be seen by others. Folly results in foolish action. And that's how it shows itself, both in the action and in the fruit. Verse 17, a wicked messenger falls into trouble, but a faithful ambassador brings health. It is very hard to find faithful messengers. Look around at churches, for example. How many faithful ambassadors to Christ are there who preach the word without adulteration? With that being clearly the principal goal. But in other environments, have you ever tried to get somebody else to act as an intermediary to engage on things? And the difficulties of that. Have you ever tried to have an order carried by somebody else to have them try to get something done and given here's the goal here's the order make sure that's understood so those sorts of things the messenger makes a really big difference messenger makes a really big difference a wicked messenger falls into trouble but a faithful ambassador brings health. Now, evil messengers, they harm themselves. They also obviously harm the person they're carrying the message for. Right? Righteous or faithful messengers seek to act like ambassadors and bring blessing both to themselves and to the person they're delivering the message to and the person they're delivering the message for. Righteous or faithful messengers seek to act like ambassadors and bring blessing to themselves and the other parties and thus reduce toil, right, fruitless work, and strife. And that encourages health and life, both in the body and the soul. Verse 18. Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains instruction, but he who regards a rebuke will be honored. The rejection of musar, of instruction, brings shame and poverty. But the rebuke, the order to put off when heeded, will bring honor. Right, so earlier on we had the idea that the, the good son is going to hear the instruction of the father. He's going to heed it. He's going to pursue that training. And here we've got, look, if you reject even rebukes, how foolish is that? How, how folly-full is that, right? Just heeding the rebukes has a blessing with it. Right? Not, 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 even just, not even chasing hard after the training. Just heeding the rebukes 
has an honor to it. Have you ever witnessed somebody else rebuking a third party and the third party responding well? Did that make you think better of the third party? And if they actually stopped doing the bad thing, then they stopped the corrosion that was occurring from that wickedness. And so it preserves honor, it gains honor. And also, as you do put off evil, you have to stop and go, okay, well, what should I do? And it encourages, it makes more likely the pursuit of the training we're putting on. So if you do the next right thing, it makes doing the right thing after that easier. Taking one decisive point makes taking another decisive point easier. Accomplishing the desire is a tree of life. The law of the wise is a fountain of life. Nineteen, a desire accomplished is sweet to the soul, but it is an abomination to fools to depart from evil. Verse 19 loops back to verse 12. Right? Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. Even though it is sweet to accomplish goals and be satisfied with a fulfilled desire, the fool will not depart from a false view of the good. And he will not seek the true good, which is guaranteed and unalienable, and will bring everlasting sweetness to the soul. The fool sees the rejection of his false gods, his false good, as abominable. And he's lying to himself about how to obtain satisfaction. And so, departing from evil is an abomination because they say, no, 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 this connects to my God. And you want me to put off the service of my God. Whether it's pleasure, power, money, whatever it is. So, Verse 20, he who walks with the wise will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. Bad company corrupts good morals. Verse 21, evil pursues sinners, but the righteous, but to the righteous good shall be repaid. You reap what you sow. Verse 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Stable wealth across generations is for the wise. But even really rich fools are in a process of involuntary servitude. Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, they are piling up silver for us. They will stably keep their wealth for us. They want to stably keep it for Satan. But the Lord providentially takes their money, laughs at their face, and looks at them and says, I'm using this for my purposes. Literally go to hell. That's what he does. He's victorious. He's terrifying. Jeff Bezos is laughable to him. These men have no power compared to Christ. He will vex them. He will laugh at them. They pile up silver for the saints. Their wealth is stored up for the righteous. Much good is in the uncultivated ground of the poor. And for lack of justice, there's waste. And for lack of justice, the, all of the gain that could be made from the possessions of the poor is swept away. Corruption prevents productivity. 
the application of the law of God in the civil sphere makes it so that the poor can generate wealth. And if there is not justice, if there are not courts that will defend the poor against the oppression of the rich, and if there are not courts that will protect the rights of property of individuals in the face of those who harm their rights, then corruption prevents the creation of wealth. It is a common thing in history for people in oppressive systems to not work very hard, but instead to seek to get whatever they could eking out on the edges and to steal the productivity that really was theirs, but they were enslaved. And so they take that productivity and they hide it and they can't invest it. They have to dig holes in the ground and put it there. If there were a just system, they would work harder, their produce would be reinvested and the result would be much more wealth. The biblical system of law and the protection of private property rights results in the productivity even of the poor. The poor are the ones that are most hurt by not having a system of justice. The restraining of evil is hardest for people with the least resources, which is why all of this, you know, defund the police nonsense was effectively making it so that poor people were being abused by criminals in poor neighborhoods. Verse 24, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Loving your children means you will use the rod on the back, but hating them means you will be slow to discipline or you never will discipline. That's about as plain a verse as you can get. But the rod means not the rod. Verse 25, the righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul, but the stomach of the wicked shall be in want. Jump back up to verse 19. A desire accomplished is sweet to the soul, but it is an abomination to fools to depart from evil. Verse 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. Verse 2. many pages a man shall eat well by the fruit of his mouth but the soul of the unfaithful feeds on violence the law of God tells us how to obtain desires that are ultimately satisfying that are satisfying along the way and that have a stable effect the righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul but the stomach of the wicked shall be in want comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights Roberts. What do you do with a wise man that not listen to rebuke? So, a wise man that won't listen to rebuke, right? You could you could actually have a relatively wise man, right, who's who's being stubborn in a particular circumstance. So, the thing is that um, a little folly is ruinsome to the wise. It's a fly in the ointment. And so, what has to occur if there's a wise man who won't heed rebuke is the need to apply increasing pressure by bringing witnesses to then rebuke and then bringing before the assembly to bring rebuke. And if he's a wise man, those increasing callbacks, he will, he will remember, settle out with my opponent before I come into the assembly and am shamed. He will remember, heed rebuke. He will think about the mouths of two or three witnesses and maybe I should listen to these witnesses that are rebuking me together. So the increasing pressure of those things should bring repentance. And ultimately, 
if the wise man won't heed the rebuke, then you have to treat him like a fool and he needs to be cast out of the assembly. Stephanie. I have like two and a half things. First, what's the word scoffer mean? So a scoffer is a person who mocks or reviles. Uh, the goal is to tear down. So think of somebody who's who's always kind of uh, trying to show the foolishness of things, especially in the context of one who is who is mocking what is righteous. Okay. And then the second, you were talking about the public school system, which we obviously all know is corrupt. So is your solution a universal like homeschooling or like basically changing the public school system to make it not corrupt and like lead it towards like Christ? So the state has no role in running schools. It is a usurpation of the authority of private individuals and the home. Schools can be formed by partnerships between homes and individuals and homes have the right to school their own children. And so private education and that takes the form of you know partnerships or tutoring or of homeschooling and the same thing that the state is doing except that it's extracted unlawfully wealth to pay for the educations of other people and teaches the established religion of secularism right so so that is the problem so the solution is we should sell the the, the public schools to the highest bidder and many of them would turn to private schools so i wasn't talking about the state getting involved more of like the churches kind of getting involved like it used to be like before, recently, it was like basically like local communities had like their own curriculums, right? Like, would you, is that kind of what you think would be the best? Or like everyone just basically like homeschooling their kids? So, of, like, so having like a city tax the city citizens is still the state. It's still the civil magistrate. So it's still using the taxing authority to establish schools. So the, 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 the school system, whether it's locally run or whether it's run at the state level or whether it's run at the federal level, wherever that is, it's an unlawful taxing and a usurpation of parental authority and of individual private voluntary exchange. Okay. And the last thing uh, on hate, you were talking, the way that you made it seem is hate is always bad. Hate is not always bad. Sorry. Okay. So God hates the wicked and we should hate wickedness yeah. and we will when we are uh, in glory have a better sense of uh, who the enemies of God are, and we will purely and only hate them. Um, and so there is, we should, we should, there are many things that should be hated. Hate in the context that I was talking about is hating the neighbor, hating God. Um, so violation of the law and being filled with that, uh, not seeking the good of the neighbor or uh, the glory of God is, is the thing being condemned. All right. Just a misunderstanding. Thank you. Appreciate it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarification that just occurred and for the questioning. I ask that you would cause the truth of your word to be made known. And I ask that you would help us to grow in expressing the fruits of wisdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.